0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that You gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. How's it going? Welcome to Brew Church. Um, You've already been welcomed, but consider yourself welcomed again. Uh, So tonight, as has been mentioned a few times, we're continuing our series uh, about purity culture. Um, And if you have no idea what that means or why we're talking about it, um, basically it was this like... It was and still is this subculture within evangelical Christianity uh, that talked about sort of abstinence, traditional gender roles, modesty. But the reason we're talking about it is because it's kind of like um, Josh talked about it as this, like, hyper object. This thing that maybe we can't see or fully identify, but it has all these effects and has had this impact on so many different people's lives. And so we're kind of talking about the impact that it has had. And last week, uh, we talked about shame and how shame is one of those things that maybe we experience in life and how that comes from sort of purity culture. Um, And some of us in this room grew up in a church that, uh, you know, sort of kind of like inundated us in purity culture, and so we've experienced it directly, but even if we weren't a part of Christianity or didn't experience evangelical Christian purity culture directly, purity cultures exist everywhere. It's kind of this bigger thing beyond that one thing, so we're naming the impacts so that we can, like, untangle those things and um, heal from sort of the mess that purity cultures can cause in our lives. Uh, But first I want to tell you about my encounter, the first encounter I had with uh, this sort of evangelical Christian purity culture. It happened back when uh, Krista and I were dating. Um, We were in college and uh, Krista bought these two books um, that Thinking about it now, I cringe that we own these books. I'm going to tell you the full titles because the titles are long. And I'm not kidding that these books uh, exist. They are real books. Um, So, yeah, these these are the books. The first one that I got, obviously, because you have to have one for, you know, the male and one for the female because traditional gender roles. Uh, So the book that Krista gave me was called (laughs) Every Man's Battle. Winning the war on sexual temptation one victory at a time. (laughs) Going to war against sexual temptation. Uh, And uh, the one that Krista had for herself was Every Woman's Battle, Discovering God's Plan for Sexual and Emotional Fulfillment. Four million copies sold. (laughs) 4 million copies. Why do these books exist? Like did anyone read these godforsaken books? Like anybody in the room? Okay, you know what? <laughs> yes, we have some. Yes, okay, we're not alone in our trauma. Um as you can tell if you didn't read these from these very obvious, highly sexist, overly dramatized titles, the entire premise of these books, 4 million copies sold, is about abstinence. You don't need an entire book about abstinence, but apparently these people thought that they needed an entire book about abstinence. And, y- and we read them. We took them seriously. <laughs> we loved it. We thought we needed it for some sick reason. Um, But all that the books served to do early on in our relationship was create shame around sex. Like, they weren't helping us sort of have a healthy relationship with sex. They were creating shame around sex, and that's what purity culture does. For a lot of people, particularly youth and young adults, it created shame. Because to get to the core of what peer culture is, the entire premise is that desires, particularly sexual urges, are bad and that you need to learn to manage or restrain or control those desires. But if you tell youth and young adults that sexual urges are bad, that kind of shame doesn't go away. Like, it doesn't just magically go away the moment you get married, like some, you know, flipping a coin or something, right? Because if we, if we know anything about psychology, our brains make connections and associations, and an adolescent, their brain is developing at that moment in time. And so telling an adolescent to develop some sense of shame around the natural things that our bodies are doing at that moment in time has a lasting impact on us. Now, I know that not everyone in this room has grown up in evangelical Christian purity culture. And if that's you, consider yourself hashtag blessed. Um, (laughs) um, But I would would venture to guess you were exposed to some other version of a purity culture. For example, uh, diet culture. Anybody, like, diet, go on a bunch of diets? Diet culture is its own form of purity culture because what diet culture says is certain foods are good and certain foods are bad. And if you've ever heard someone say, well, oh, I'm being bad today. I'm eating a cookie. That's the same exact thing as purity culture. It's the same phenomenon. What purity culture does is it creates rules around what is right or good or allowed And then we feel shame if we don't follow those rules or if we don't match up with the expectations. And we talked about the shame thing last week, how to dispel that shame. But I think another unintended consequence of these rigid rules is that it can lead us to have a suspicion of our own selves to not really trust ourselves, whether it's our intuition, our emotions, to second-guess ourselves, to ignore our needs. We can learn to ignore that intuition if it doesn't match up with what we're being told. Whether it's been subtle or overt, many of us at various points in our lives have been told to ignore certain things to ignore our feelings, to ignore intuition, to ignore our boundaries, to ignore our needs. Like, how many times as a kid are we told, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, right? Don't be sad, stop crying, don't be angry. What those messages tell us is that our emotions don't belong in this space. Our emotions are meant to be managed, suppressed, or they're inappropriate. And so we learn to ignore them. We learn to push past them and do what we're told. Like I know for me, the message that I picked up throughout my entire life is that rest means being lazy. And so I learned how to be constantly productive, to push myself past the point of exhaustion. I was praised for overworking, and so I overworked and I'm still untangling this message. To this day, I will sit on the couch, even if it's for like an hour, and then I'll feel ashamed that I wasn't as productive as I could have been. That is why we're talking about purity culture, because it's not just the whole sexual thing that happened with evangelical Christian purity culture. It's like all these other things, these messages that that tell us that, you know, this is bad and this is good, and you shouldn't listen to yourself. For some of us, maybe it led us to have poor boundaries. Or maybe it led us to hate our bodies or to constantly want to people please. Anytime that there is a standard standard by which we measure ourselves and we have this pressure to fulfill that standard, even if it's going against every ounce of our being, I think that's purity culture at play. So, uh, as I was working on this talk, I was listening to this podcast that's been like absolutely like wrecking me um, by this woman named Hillary McBride. Is anybody familiar with Hillary McBride? Uh, she, yeah, Doctor Hillary McBride. Yeah, I got to go to the proper title. My bad. Um, and she has this podcast about spiritual trauma called Holy Hurt. Um, She's kind of a therapist that works in that area. And in the episode, she was uh, talking about the stages of development that we go through just as humans. Um, And she talked about uh, the no phase. Y'all are familiar with the no phase, right? Okay, yeah, the terrible twos. (laughs) No, you're not familiar. Um, So we've probably all been around a kid that is in the no phase, like, my niece is currently in the no phase, and I think it's, like, the cutest thing. Um, Probably super annoying for her parents, for my sister, but, like, for me, I'm just, like, oh, that's awesome. She's just saying no to everything, and it's, like, awesome. (laughs) But what Hillary was saying is that this no phase is, like, a crucial part of a child's development, right? And parents could interpret this as a child being rebellious or disobedient and maybe in turn punish the child or they could see the importance of a child learning to say no because they're kind of figuring out that they have a voice and they have a personhood and a will and they're trying to get a sense of how to use that voice it's like the child is trying to say will you still love me if i say no Will you still love me if my feelings are different than yours? Will you still love me and show me care and affection and be close even if I think differently than you? I don't know how many of us um, would consider ourselves people pleasers, like is anybody a people pleaser here? But maybe at some point, our no cost us connection. And so maybe we grew up as people pleasers because we thought that's what we needed to do to be loved and accepted. Because if we said no, then we wouldn't be accepted. She also tells this story of a mentor of hers who was having this conversation with her daughter and her daughter had lied to her. And this mentor, instead of shaming her daughter about lying, she took it as an opportunity to have a conversation with her about, you know, lying and when it's appropriate, when it's not to help her explore why she made that choice to lie, some of the consequences of lying, and also what it means to tell the truth and why it's important to tell the truth. When kids are lying, it's not because they're evil, (laughs) deceitful humans. It's because they're trying to figure out relationships and how to navigate this world and what sorts of things they can keep to themselves and what sorts of things they have to share. And when we aren't given the space to explore those things at those natural, natural development stages because we're told nope that's not right nope stop doing that nope it can stunt our development as adults maybe we develop improper boundaries because of an inability to say no a fear of making others upset Maybe we lack tools for self-affirmation and radical acceptance, or maybe we develop this suspicion to our own needs, or maybe we ignore our bodies or believe that's what it means to be loved. To be loved, we have to sacrifice ourselves, we have to do certain things, we have to perform. And these messages can become ingrained in us and it takes a lot of work to entangle them. And then to make matters worse, This is a soapbox that I get on a lot. so I'm just going to get on it again if you've been here. To make matters worse, in Christianity, it's compounded by this belief that humans are inherently evil and wrong and sinful and whatever, and that our hearts are deceitful, so we shouldn't listen to our hearts or our bodies or our feelings because they're going to lead us astray. And we could spend an entire night, an entire day, like an entire weekend conference unpacking the trauma that has come from that belief. And I think that misses the fact that like the first thing that God says, if you read the scriptures, is that we're good, that we're actually very good. Like that's the first thing that God says. And uh, you know, s- this is also a side note. Like, in the in a in a in the same vein, people will say, "Well, like you should listen to God." Well, like how else do you listen to God besides like what happens in your body, right? Like you hear things in your ears, you process them in your brain, like. If God is speaking to you and saying, well, this is what you actually should be doing, like, isn't that your intuition? I don't know. Just a thought. Server. <laughs> we can get into a philosophical debate on that. <laughs> if we have the belief that humans are inherently bad or sinful, then the most appropriate response is to manage, suppress, and control. But if we come from the place that our bodies are extremely wise, that our brains are wired for survival. And that whatever our body is telling us is something to listen to instead of ignoring it then we actually can become curious about those things and we can learn to be more in tune with ourselves and with who we are like for example uh something that you know has happened recently in my life um, is i've developed uh a greater fear for wasps than i've had even before um so I used to be afraid of wasps at a certain level. Um, I developed this fear when I was a kid and we were at the pool and there was a wasp floating on the water, and I took a um, flip-flop, a chancla, um, if you speak Spanish, and, <laughs> and I smacked the wasp, definitely killed it, um, and then I scooped it out of the water and put it on the pavement because I wanted to swim and didn't want the wasp to be there. But as I watched this wasp, the stinger was still going in and out, in and out, over and over and over. And I developed this image in my brain that wasps are really aggressive, which they are because wasps are assholes. Um, (laughs) But I had never gotten stung by a wasp until recently. So a few weeks ago, I was, you know, um, we have this wanna tree that like sits next to our house and it loves to just like throw a bunch of crap onto our deck and our roof and whatever. And so sometimes I'll go out there with a leaf blower and I'll just like blow all the stuff off the deck and one day I was out there and I was blowing the stuff off the deck and a wasp lands on my hand and stings me. First time I ever got stung by a wasp. I drop the leaf blower. I freak out. I go inside. The leaf blower's still going. I'm like calling Krista like I I think I just got stung just in case I have a reaction. Just know I might be dead like uh, in our house. Like I don't know what's gonna happen. I took a Benadryl and I was fine. I calmed down. It was okay. Um, Then the next week I'm out there blowing, you know, our deck again because this freaking walnut tree and another wasp stings me on the back of my arm this time. And so I start to develop this anxiety of going out on the deck. I end up finding out there's a nest under, like, an awning that we have on our deck, and I, you know, absolutely destroy the nest. I don't care. I uh, Bees are great. They're pollinators. you got to take care of the bees. Wasps can go extinct. Like, they're horrible. <laughs> they are horrible animals. I do not care that they exist. So I destroy this nest, but now every time I go out there, I have that fear come up again and again and again and it lessens every time but it's still there there's that feeling that fear that anxiety and i wish i could go back to the time when i didn't have that response but i can't and that's i think the same thing for untangling the impact that years of conditioning particularly from purity culture um, how that work Happens Because our bodies and brains developed these responses to these messages that we were told so that we can, we could fit in, so that we could feel safe, so that we could belong. And today, those same responses may be the very things that make our life difficult, that keep us from being present or feeling free or, you know, feeling like we can be comfortable in our own bodies. But what is not helpful is being frustrated with ourselves, being frustrated with our bodies for having those responses. I think it's more helpful to thank our brains, to thank our bodies for doing what they needed to do to keep us safe. Those responses developed for a reason. And then to do the slow work of untangling the messages that we were given that weren't helpful. Hillary says that the inspiring and hopeful research about neuroplasticity shows us that there is no such thing as too old, too hurt, too stuck to change, and I would add, to heal. Our bodies, ourselves, have the ability to adapt and heal and change right up until the moment that we die. And to paraphrase the rest of what she said after that, we deserved the space to be ourselves back then. If you grew up in purity culture, we deserved to explore sexuality and to have whatever response we had to the things that we were experiencing in our bodies. We deserve the space to be afraid and to be told that we're going to be okay, but not to have our fear minimized. Like, we deserve the space to disagree, to say no, and still experience unconditional love. And not getting what we needed in those moments in time in our lives wasn't the result of, I think, sometimes people trying to hurt us on purpose. It was probably the result of systems, and systems built by people who likely didn't get their needs met either. Not getting our needs met wasn't proof that we were bad or unlovable. And I think that we can heal our own relationships with our bodies. I think that we can heal our relationship with our needs. We can learn to listen to ourselves. We can give space for those emotions, even if we weren't given space for them back then. The thing that purity culture does to disconnect us from our needs and from our bodies in spaces like this where we acknowledge those things name it and then try to understand that there's a different way to live i think we can begin to heal it thank you for listening to this episode peace and blessings everyone